Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 to 22, verse 5. Welcome to Christ the King at this 11 o'clock service as we continue in our ongoing series in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Though our sermon will focus on 1 Samuel 21 and 22, to begin, I'd like to listen to Psalm 57. So, would you turn there, if you have a Bible, to Psalm 57? We have lots to talk about this morning. In fact, you're, you're going to have to work a little to stay with how I'm presenting this text. I say that because in the first service, I had at least one person with a head down on the table by about two-thirds of the way through the sermon, so I knew that I was asking quite a lot. <laughs> Psalm 57. I think if we miss this, we're going to miss the heart of this section of 1 Samuel. Psalm 57 is David in the cave. This is where God's anointed one is at when we get to 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, which you heard read a minute ago. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And if you're there at Psalm 57, look at the title, the heading of the psalm. I know there's controversy around how to understand the titles in the Psalms and how they connect historically, but they are indisputably part of the Hebrew text of the Psalter. So for my money, we'll take them with full seriousness. And there you see the title of Psalm 57. It's a little mysterious. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, which is probably something like the name of a tune to which the words are sung, like we have tunes to hymns. A miktam, no one really knows what a miktam is, but it's a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. In the cave. And I go with the understanding that the cave mentioned there is the cave of Adullam, where we are in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. And so here he is, the Lord's anointed, the future king. Let's read just the first five verses of Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. 
which is the note that rings all the way to the end of the psalm. It continues, this is David's song in the cave at Adullam. And in fact, it's not just Psalm 57. We won't turn there, but you could go and look at Psalm 142, which is likewise attributed to David in the cave. And it's remarkably similar in content to Psalm 57. From all we could say about Psalm 57, which is a lot, it's mainly verse 2 I want us to consider as our initial window into 1 Samuel 21 and 22 this morning. Look there again at Psalm 57, verse 2. David sings, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I'm saying that that's where David's come to by the time we reach 1 Samuel 22. And I think that that's something of a turning point. Sandra read the text. It's a relatively short, dense passage of scripture that we're considering this morning in 1 Samuel. There's lots of detail. There's lots of questions that emerge to which I do not have all the answers. But here's what I think we're meant to see. I think we're meant to see that David here is a work in progress. He's a work in progress. Does that make sense? This is not an easy time in David's life. We left him in tears last week as he parted from Jonathan. Michal can't be with him. He'd been to see Samuel, but he'd had to leave Samuel a couple of chapters back. Saul would have his head if he could get it. Saul's servants all know now that Saul wants him dead. Who's David even safe with? And this is David we're talking about here. The Lord's anointed one, the future king, the one everyone seemed to love just a couple of chapters ago, and now he's a refugee. Now he's a wanderer, which is not a minor theme in 1 Samuel, is it? It's the whole rest of the book, in fact. Basically, one-third of the entire book of 1 Samuel is about David's wanderings. Why? It's a difficult and dangerous time. It's one in which David will undergo testings and trials. But if there's one thing that becomes clear through all of it, it's this. God will fulfill his purpose for David. The anointed one must suffer, but the Lord will sustain him. And we're going to see even this morning that that's true at times despite David's own failures. Because David doesn't get things right all the time. Yet, it's in the experiences of these difficult days that David learns much about humility, about dependence on the Lord. You see, he's being shaped, he's being purged, he's being refined. The book of Psalms contains, in fact, no fewer than seven psalms that explicitly in their titles are associated with these dark days recounted in the latter part of 1 Samuel. I've already mentioned two to you. Likely, Others that aren't explicitly linked are nonetheless have their origin point from this time in David's life. 
This is not a minor part of the story. It's not a minor part of David's story or of Jesus's story or of our stories, brothers and sisters. I like how one commentator says it. It was off to the wilderness with David. There God would break him of relying on his own wisdom and teach him to rely wholly on the word of the Lord. For God frequently brings hardship into the lives of his children in order to bring them to a higher level of maturity and usefulness. Yes. Yes. Psalm 57, verse 2, In the cave I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. And I say that that's something of a turning point, because as I read the passage that was read to you a minute ago, that point comes after two episodes in chapter 21, which, frankly, we're uncertain about David in those episodes. We're not quite sure what's going on. But by the time he comes to the cave, it seems he's learned something vital. And then I think we see the evidence in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 22 that David has grown some that in contrast to his actions in chapter 21, it seems he demonstrates then the beginning of a theology that sees his future is in God's hands. As readers, you see, you and I, we've known for a while now that the Lord was with David, as it says explicitly in chapter 18, and verse 24, and then in verse 28 of chapter 18. But it's time now for David to recognize that fact for himself. So, with the time we have remaining this morning, we're going to look at these events in chapter 21, verse 1, to 22, verse 5. I'm going to do it in four parts. Parts 1 and 2 are in chapter 21, before David's song in the cave. Parts 3 and 4 are then in chapter 22, just the first five verses, after David's song in the cave. And, I don't know, for fun and to hopefully help you somehow to hold on to the themes that I'm trying to emphasize a little better, I'm going to give you these four parts in alliterated headings. Four. I know some of you love this stuff. Four parts. One, David experiences God's provision in chapter 21, verses 1 to 9, despite his sin. Two, David responds in praise for God's deliverance in 21, 10 to 15, despite his foolishness. Three, David recognizes God's providence in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 22. And finally, fourthly, David responds faithfully to God's prophet in verse 5 of chapter 22. So did you hear it? It's provision, despite his sin. It's praise, despite his foolishness. Then it's 
providence that David recognizes and the prophet to which he responds. That's just trying to give you words that put this together a little bit. Four events. We're considering how David grows through the course of this in this brief passage, if I'm reading the text right. First then, David experiences God's provision in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 21, despite his sin. Verse 1, then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Now, presumably from chapter 20, he'd been on the outskirts of Gibeah when he parted from Jonathan. That means then he would have headed a few miles south to the place called Nob, where he sought out Ahimelech the priest. Now, 1 Samuel has not explained much about this or anything. It has not explained this, but it seems likely that after the Philistines had captured the ark, if you can cast your minds way back to that moment in chapter 4, and when Eli and Eli's sons had died, after that time, the Shiloh sanctuary, where we started the whole book, the beginning of 1 Samuel, was destroyed. That seems to be the case, destroyed by the Philistines, in other words, because Shiloh's never mentioned again in the narrative. And you have other biblical texts like Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 26, that talk about the destruction of Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, as something that's well known. Nowhere ever does it say exactly when it happened. Most scholars think the Philistines destroyed Shiloh shortly after the events of 1 Samuel 4, which means the tabernacle moved just north of Jerusalem to Nob which is called, in chapter 22, verse 19, the city of the priests. So this is the new spiritual center of Israel, Nob. David goes there and finds Ahimelech. Ahimelech is the great-grandson of Eli. Now next week you'll learn in verse 9 of chapter 22 that Ahimelech was the son of Ahitub, which if your memory is really good, you might recall was the brother of Ichabod, who was the son of Phinehas, who was the son of Eli. Point being, Ahimelech is part of the line of Eli. All of which is going to matter a great deal next week when we come to the dark passage in the rest of chapter 22. But already, we get the sense that something's not right. Verse 1 says, Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? He knows something's gone wrong. Probably he suspects David's been driven out by Saul. Otherwise, why is he alone? Ahimelech likely gets that it's risky to give David help. But David misleads him. David fabricates a story about the king charging him with a matter that he can't say anything about, but involves meeting the young men for such and such a place. And you can just feel the lie, right, in the wording there. And actually, it's quite humorous how in my view, quite humorous, the various ways that people try to come to David's defense here. Some who suggest that he's just trying to protect Ahimelech from Saul by giving him this story. Other suggestions. I don't buy it. I think it's David desperate. I think it's a calculated approach in which he's seeking vital resources that he needs 
from Ahimelech. In other words, I think it's David using the priest for his own purposes here. Now, we do find out later in chapter 22 and verse 15 that Ahimelech had, in fact, inquired of God for David. So David maybe came asking for something that Ahimelech uses the ephod to divine the Lord's will concerning. We don't know what that is. Maybe there's some other motives in going to Nob as well. But what's clear is that David needed help. Specifically, he needed food and weapons, and he decided Nob was the place to go. Why? Well, as I read it, I think it's probably because David knew Ahimelech had Goliath's sword. And there's a couple textual things that betray that if we were to look at the detail in the Hebrew. He asks for what is under Ahimelech's hand. He knows very well. The sword is there. So he goes to Nob and he lies concerning what's going on in what I read as a desperate attempt to get what he needs. And in doing so, he jeopardizes Ahimelech and brothers and sisters that will have ghastly consequences, as we'll see in the passage next week. In fact, David will see that in due course by the end of the passage next week. In fact, he'll come to regret that he ever went to Nob. All of which is to say, just in a parenthesis, in a parenthesis here, this is why we have that ominous note in verse 7 about Doeg the Edomite. The chief of Saul's herdsmen, it says, who's there that day. The Edomites are no friend of Israel, if you know anything about that. What's Doeg doing working for Saul? I mean, we're prepared here for something bad to happen, but you'll learn more about that next week. What I'm suggesting is that this is not a good first move by David, right? That's my read. And yet, despite the deception and the danger and the fear of this part of the passage, what is it that God seems to be doing? And as I read it, it seems that God, in fact, provides for David despite his sin. It almost seems too simple, I admit, but I think that that's the point of the bread that David receives from the priest. I say that because this is not just bread. It's nothing less than the bread of the presence, it says, which ordinarily only the priests were to eat. It was holy bread. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9, where every Sabbath, 12 loaves of this bread were to be placed on the table on the north side of the holy place in the tabernacle. Why? Well, among other things, I think it's to be a witness that Yahweh sustains his people and supplies their needs. This is bread that reminds us, takes us back to the Exodus 16 event in which the provision of the bread from heaven is for all of Israel in the wilderness. There are 12 loaves after all, right? Ahimelech's holy bread, symbolizing the provision of the Lord for his people, becomes David's daily bread. In other words, the Lord provided for David, not that David deserved it, given what he'd just done to get it. 
But as Jesus himself would argue in Matthew 12, if you know this text, when Jesus recounts this very episode in 1 Samuel, Ahimelech was right to give it to David, according to Jesus. Not least because David was the anointed one, the point that Jesus seems in fact to focus on. In this narrative, I think the point is David's need was genuine, even if the need he represented wasn't. And the Lord was gracious. And the Lord provided it. The food and the sword. But then it brings us to the second event in which David acts once more in foolishness. He'll respond in praise, ultimately, for God's deliverance of what happens in verses 10 to 15, despite his foolishness. And I say foolishness because, frankly, what is David thinking when he rose and fled from Saul, it says, and went to Achish, the king of Gath? Remember Gath? Gath is one of the five main Philistine cities. Some 25 miles southwest of Nob, toward the coastal plain. What's more, Gath is Goliath's hometown. Remember? Achish is the ruler, the king, in that city. There goes David with Goliath's sword, which couldn't have been that easy to disguise. Why? I don't know. Perhaps hoping to find sanctuary, maybe hoping to go incognito somehow as an anonymous Hebrew fugitive? We don't know. Maybe he just figured he had to get out of Saul's reach somehow. Whatever the case, the truly remarkable thing ends up being that David survived it. Because it turns out the Philistines were far less naive or unsuspecting than David had apparently supposed they were. So verse 11, and the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Which, wait a minute, that's incredible, right? Because David wasn't king yet. But to the Philistines who understood what was going on in Israel, evidently he was the de facto king. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And then you remember that from earlier in the book. And then notice in verse 12, what the narrator says, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. To which you might say, well, sure he was. Seems like an obvious thing to say, except that it isn't. This is a remarkable moment in the books of First and Second Samuel because, in fact, this is the only place we're ever told that David was afraid of any threats against him. Did you know that? Where's David at right now? I think this is a big deal. We're still early in David's wanderings. I think he's been a fool to go to Gath. And he's now in the hands of the Philistines, according to verse 13, which means it's a way of saying he'd been seized. So what would he do? Verse 13. 
So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And it's so much that Akish wants nothing to do with him. He's evidently surrounded by crazies already. Do I lack madmen? He asked his servants. Right? Ouch. <laughs> Very nice. And just as in the episode with Ahimelech, you can read and sort of chuckle at all kinds of suggestions as to how to understand David's going to Gath and his method for escape. And my read again is this is not very positive. I think David had been a fool who was then reduced to putting on an embarrassing act. I mean, come on, this is the faithful one who slew Goliath. This is the great warrior who defeated not 100, but 200 Philistines to win the hand of Michal. Maybe David could be called cunning here. He clearly was a good actor. But this isn't right. David's afraid. And he's foolish, and he's desperate, and he's confused. And yet, perhaps the significance of the text telling us that David was afraid is that this would now be the turning point. That yes, this is a low moment, but the Lord would preserve David. And David would learn from this. What would he learn? Now, I mean, I'm just, I spent a long time this week trying to interpret this text in order to preach it to you. So you're getting my read of this passage. It's not that everybody agrees with the way I'm talking about this, but what would David learn? Well, in fact, there are two Psalms, did you know, that according to their titles originate from this very episode in Gath, two of them, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. Now that's significant, I submit to you. And I would encourage you to have a look at those two psalms sometime this week, but when you do look at them, be ready for a bit of a surprise. Because whereas 1 Samuel tells us David was much afraid in verse 12, Psalm 56 explains what David learned to do with that fear. Evidently, as he reflected back on this whole episode of what had just happened. Psalm 56 is titled, again, a miktam, whatever that is, of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. There we are in our Samuel narrative. Just listen to how verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 56 talk about what David has learned, how to process this. Psalm 56, verse 3, when I am afraid, you hear the resonance with the narrative when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Now, do you hear that? Somehow in Psalm 56, David's moved from being afraid to not being afraid. And I don't see any evidence of that in 1 Samuel 21. I think that's what David learned from the episode in Gath. That if God was for him, as he says later in that psalm, who could be against him? 
Listen to verse 8 of that same Psalm uh, 56. This is where David had come to at this point, is what I'm arguing. You have kept count of my tossings, he says, and that could perhaps better be translated wanderings. You have kept count of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. Listen, I think this is what David learned. That God is for me. Brothers and sisters, what is David learning here, having escaped from the Philistines in Gath? That he was exceedingly clever and effective at deceiving his enemies? No. Rather, that even in our foolishness, we can sometimes see God's mercies. Consider, if you would, Psalm 34, the other psalm that explicitly links to this episode. Psalm 34, verses 4 and following. Here's verse 4. I sought the Lord, David writes, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Do you hear that? David was learning what to do with his fears, the same fear language. Here's verse 6. This poor man cried. He's talking about himself, David. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. You hear how David's learning where to put his fear. And delivers them. So that ultimately, what is David's response to the fact that he emerged from Gath alive? It's praise, Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3 now. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Look it. We've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. The life of faith isn't a linear progression. It's a roller coaster. And David's thrown into the hardest season of his life and he's desperate. And what does he do? He lies and deceives twice. He uses people for his own purposes. He acts foolishly. And please let's not sit here internally casting judgment on David because we think we'd do any better. Or at least I know I probably wouldn't. Right. Have you ever lied your way out of something? Ever done something foolish? Meaning the, the opposite of faith? Something that led to only more foolishness? Ever used other people to secure your needs in a desperate moment? Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you will. Here's what I pray happens. That in response to the gracious provision of the Lord when you don't deserve it, or to his gracious deliverance from your fears when you've been foolish, something shifts. Something shifts inside you so that even if now all you can see are the walls of a cave, 
you've come to better understand the ways of the Lord. And you praise Him. And you say like David did in Psalm 57, 1 to 3, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. Why is David asking for mercy in Psalm 57? What has he done? Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. And having turned that corner, if my read of this text is Fair. Having turned that corner, what then begins to happen to David? I know the time is gone, but the text is short, so let me finish it. David's family and others now begin to gather around David. The family comes, probably Saul's after them too. Others begin gathering, not necessarily the most impressive bunch, at least in the world's terms. But you see, these are the ones who need a king like David, right? Who did Jesus have around him? 22 verse 1, And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. And he became commander over them. And there with him about 400 men. Something's happening. And He'd have to have been there for at least a little while for such a group like this to gather. And this, this gathering of men around David will be significant later in, first, in Samuel. But for now, the narrator takes us on to the main thing, which seems to be about David's family. And we come then to the third event that I'm trying to summarize for you now, in which David recognizes God's providence. I get that from verses 3 and 4. And David went from there to Mizpeh of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. I just think that sounds a little different than the David we saw just in chapter 21. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. David recognizes God's providence. Firstly, in his own life, his own situation now is rather bleak. But what has he learned? That God will fulfill his purpose for me. That's what he's learned, Psalm 57, verse 2. So what does he say when he asks the king of Moab to take his parents? He asks the king to take them till I know what God will do for me. He doesn't know what's next, what will come, how this is going to go. David knows this, that God will do according to his word. So he trusts God's providence, even as he's going now to the stronghold, wherever that is. We don't know where it is exactly. Probably not back in the cave of Abdullam, since Moab is on the east of Israel. David had been at the west in Gath, and then probably not far from there. I mean, he's gone all over the map in this short section. But there's even another way in which David is recognizing God's providence at this juncture, I think. And that's in bringing his family to the king of Moab in the first place. Because why take them there? I mean, Saul fought Moab, right? Not like they were friendly with all of Israel. Why take them there? Well, you know why? 
I think it's probably because David's own family line comes through Moab. Remember? Ruth? Ruth the Moabites? David's great-grandmother? Look back at the book of Ruth this week if you want to follow up on this one. Talk about providence. I mean, it seems likely that David's Moabite ancestress may have aided his request for the asylum of his parents. Friends, doesn't that put a bit of a new light on the events recorded in the book of Ruth? Doesn't it shed some kind of light on Naomi's trial? I mean, on her husband's and her son's deaths and on all the quiet twists of circumstance, if you know that book by which Ruth came to Boaz's attention and on and on. And it all forms then the perfect backdrop so that David could appeal to the king of Moab now. At least that's what I think is happening here. As one commentator writes, Yahweh plans his kindnesses long beforehand. He directs circumstances long in advance in order to bring a ray of relief in David's present distress. It was not something David set in place. It was a gift. Yahweh arranged it long before. Nor is it something he does only for chosen kings. A great number of his saints have stories to tell about desperation and providence. Which brings us to the last verse of the text. And so fourthly, the fourth episode where David now responds faithfully to God's prophet. Doesn't he? This one's pretty obvious. I think verse five says, then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And no, we've never heard of Gad before, though we'll meet him again at the end of 2 Samuel. And no, we don't know where the forest of Hereth is or was. But none of that's the point. The point is that God's now doing exactly what David told the king of Moab he would do. He's fulfilling his purpose for David, and that involved David's returning now to the land of Judah, the land he one day would rule. And David obeys. The king is subject to the Lord's prophet, like Saul never was. Oh, brothers and sisters, you see, David been trying to get out of Judah, mostly in our chapters. It's an act of faith to go back in. To leave the stronghold. To encounter Saul's power again. To suffer. But I submit to you that David has grown that David now demonstrates for his own, from his own self the beginning of a theology that sees his future is in God's hands. And more than anything else, it's that that sets David apart from Saul. Can't you see that? David knows and accepts God's authority. I think it's Psalm 57, verse 2 again. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Or how did Jesus put it? Not as I will, 
but as you will. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.